And if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, we will be there in just a few moments as we continue on with our study of the threefold offices of Christ, those offices of prophet, priest, and king. And we spent uh, the last uh, several weeks, I think it was for five Sunday evenings, uh, as we're now looking at that third office, the kingly office, and we spent a lot of time hashing out both the promises that God made to David in the Davidic covenant, and then how Christ himself is the full fulfillment of those promises, and how we have those promises as a, as a uh, continued chain of fulfillment, both God fulfilling those promises to some extent in David's next son, or the next king of Israel, his son Solomon, but yet we see Solomon's failures. We see that there are promises made to all the kings of Israel, yet they, because of their sin, fall and bring um, reproach upon themselves, reproach upon God's people. And so all of this points forward to the fact that we need a king who is not susceptible to sin in the same way we are. And so the ultimate fulfillment of that comes when Jesus comes as the perfect king. And he begins to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he specifically fulfills all of those Davidic promises that are made to David. He is the fulfillment of them. And he brings some of that fulfillment in his ministry. There's some of that fulfillment that's going on today. And then we look forward to the day when Christ will come back for his church and he will rule and reign uh, on earth, on the throne of David. And so there is a already not yet reality to how these promises are being fulfilled. And so what I want us to do over the next several weeks is I want us to look now at a broader view of how Jesus himself is king. And particularly we're going to be looking at his, his ministry and how in his ministry he fulfills that role of being king. Uh, so we're going to be getting to Matthew 4 uh, in just a little bit, but we have to begin with a few things. But before we get any further, let's go before the Lord and seek his face. Father, again, we thank you for um, your choice to speak to us through your word. Lord, may we be bound to your word in our, um, in our learning here today. May we seek to know Christ more for the sake of seeing his glory and being changed into it. And Father, as we see how Jesus is King, may it give us hope in Him completely, and may it drive us to remember that even the best of kings, the best of rulers that we have in the world today, pale in comparison to the goodness we have in the King of the universe, the King of the kingdom, the King of His people, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, work in our midst by your Spirit as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Well, one of the things we see from the get-go when we look at Christ's ministry is his kingship seen in his incarnation. And some of this is going to be a little bit of review of what we have already discussed regarding the Davidic promises. Again, um, the angel, when it came and, and spoke to Mary, it said that Jesus, the, the, the child that would be conceived in Mary's womb, would come and be born 
according to the house of David, that there would be fulfillment there in that. And the genealogies in Matthew and Luke trace that reality back so that there is a clear indication that Christ has the right by both his divine mandate and also he has the right by the very nature of his human lineage uh, to be the Davidic king, to, to inherit the Davidic kingdom. And so, in particular, regarding this kingship, we understand Jesus is identified, particularly in John, as the eternal Son of God, the sovereign of the universe, who came in the flesh. We see this in John 1, 2 through 4. He was, this is being the Word, He was in the beginning with God. And so we recognize that before any of this world existed, there was only one being that existed. God. And He has existed from all eternity. Now, again, we're finite. We're tied to this earth. We're tied to time. And so it sort of boils my brain pan to think about the fact that God has no beginning. Yet that is what the Scriptures describe. And the the Word, which is Jesus, was there in the beginning. And then John goes on to say that all things were made through Him, through Christ, and without Him, so apart from Him, was not anything made that was made. And so what John is beginning at the very outset is to say this world has, by its very creation, a duty to respond to its ownership by Christ Himself. God made the world. He has the absolute sovereign right as King to do with it as He pleases. And in particular, that creation that Christ has is a creation that brings about Life. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, there's, there's a clear indication here that John is pointing to regarding not just the fact that Jesus is the sovereign of the universe, but also the reality that He is the unconquerable King. He cannot be conquered. No army that arrays itself against him will succeed. And that's what he brings out when he says the darkness has not overcome it. This idea of overcome in the originals has the idea of seeking to gain control of, to win or to attain. It hints at a struggle. And of course we know there has been a struggle since, since very soon after creation... After God made the angelic beings, after He made this earth, a struggle began in heaven. The devil decided to raise himself up, said, I will ascend to the Most High. I will take His place. I will become King of the universe. And of course, did Satan's rebellion succeed? No, he was cast out of heaven. His struggle and his desire to overcome the reign of God Almighty was squashed. But yet he came to earth and he took that same desire to struggle against the sovereignty of God, to struggle against God's right as creator. He came and he tempted mankind with that very thing. And what we find in the temptation with Adam and Eve is a desire for them to live a life apart from God and apart from His Word. If you remember what the temptation was, The devil came to Eve and said, you'll not surely die, but you will become what? 
like God's. And there was the temptation for her to ascend to the highest hill of heaven and to dethrone God in her own life. And that same temptation exists with every single sin temptation we face today. It is a desire to live apart from the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, if that's the way we choose to live our life, if we choose to live our life seeking to overcome the light of Christ that is the life, there's two things that are going to happen. And the one we see promised when God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did he tell Adam and Eve would happen if they ate of it? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die because they were rejecting the life. They're rejecting the one in whom was life and in whom was light. And the second thing that is the reality of that is that as we seek to struggle against the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Christ in our lives, who's going to win that struggle? Ultimately, God will. And we know that Paul tells us that how many knees will bow before Christ and declare him as Lord? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of God the Father. So just from the outset, I think it's helpful for us to recognize that when we're tempted to sin, you're tempted to do the very thing that takes you away from life, and you're tempted to do the very thing that you will find true futility in. Sin will never bring about life and satisfaction. It will only bring about death, and it will only bring about destruction in your life. Well, this eternal God who made all things, the Son who was eternally co-equal with God, was God Himself who shines in the darkness and is not overcome by the darkness of this world. What does John tell us He does? The Word became what? Flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we talk about Jesus as king, we have to, we have to found that. We have to, to make the foundation of that reality, not just simply in his fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, although that's a wonderful truth, but in the fact that he is the sovereign of the universe. And he came as the sovereign of the universe into human flesh. He came so that he could fulfill the Davidic promises, so that he could be what Adam failed to be. Remember, if we go all the way back and we talked about what the commands that God gave to Adam and Eve before they sinned, they were to have what over the earth? Dominion. That's a ruling idea. They were to subdue the earth. That's a conquering idea. There was a dominion mandate, a kingdom mandate, a rulership mandate given to Adam himself. But the first Adam failed by falling into sin. And that which the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, perfectly completes. As he is the king of the universe and he comes in flesh for our salvation. We see this in the prophecies and the prophets, particularly Jeremiah. Jeremiah ties the birth of, of Christ as king to his fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. Again, notice what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up, and here's an important point, for David. 
Now, the promises made to David implied that that seed that would come, that offspring of David, would be from his what? From his lineage, from his loins. It would be a true physical descendant of David. And that then implied that that one who would come and fulfill that, that would be raised up by God to be a righteous branch, what would he have to be? Physically from David's lineage. And again, we see how the incarnation of Christ brings that about. We also see what type of king Christ will be. He shall reign. And in his reign, he deals wisely. How do, how do we feel about the rulers of men and their dealings in, in wisdom? So often they fail. It says that Christ will execute justice. You know, there is this constant a barrage of social justice and social justice activism in the world today. And certainly there are things that mankind has done that have failed to do right, properly do justice. But I'll tell you what, no human ruler, no activist, no one is going to execute justice perfectly. But there is a king who does. And it is Jesus Christ. And then he is the one who will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Listen, when you think of a politician, you think of corruption, right? You think of of the American political system, and you almost inevitably are going to say, particularly for politicians that reach a certain level in our government, at some point they had to be corrupt. And I wish that that weren't the case, but it seems like the more and more, even the best of the rulers of men that we find, we find that they are not righteous. But Christ our King is righteous, and He executes righteousness on the earth. Well, we see that, again, Christ is identified as the eternal Son of God. Jeremiah prophesies of this, and that's just one one little snippet of many of the prophecies we see in the Old Testament regarding the kingship of Christ. But then we also see Gabriel And in his announcement to Mary of her conception of Jesus, guess what she says Jesus will be? He will be a king. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him what? The throne the throne of his father, David, and as king, he will reign how long? Forever. Over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So there's a wonderful hope in that reality that there will be no end of the perfect king's kingdom. Again, you can think about the best of presidents that we've had in America and what is, what is the, the maximum length of time that they will serve? It's how many years? Eight years. That's not a rulership that lasts forever. And particularly sometimes when we have wicked rulers, it's a blessing that they only rule for eight years. And even when we have the best of rulers and we desire for them to reign longer, they can't. Will there ever be an end to Christ's perfect reign? No. 
And so this is prophesied at the, at the incarnation of Christ. It's spoken of of His eternal reign over the kingdom. We see this in the Magi who come. The Magi come from the east and they journey to Jerusalem and they journey for a particular reason, to worship who? The newborn king of Israel. Look at what's, what Matthew says about these Magi, these wise men. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born? What? King. King of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What is amazing to note here is we have not Jewish individuals, not the people of God as, as those that have been brought into the promises of Abraham. We have heathens. We have those that are Gentiles. And yet, what are they recognizing about this child that was born in Bethlehem? He is the king. He is the king. This is really a rebuke upon Israel itself. Their king came to them. Their king came and was born, and who noticed? Gentiles and shepherds. And the shepherds only knew it because they had a pretty clear vision in the skies about it. You have a bunch of angels bursting on the scene. It's going to grab your attention. The rest of Israel, they didn't know. And that's a reminder to us today. You know, what are, what are we to be doing? Christ has already come in His first incarnation. He's already come in His first advent, but He is coming what? Again. And the Scriptures challenge God's church. They challenge Christ's people to be ready. To be prepared for Christ to come. When He comes, what will He find us doing? Will we be busy about the business of the King and His kingdom? Or will we be pursuing our own pursuits? And so, you know, my fear is that when Christ comes again in His second advent, we will, the church will very much be like Israel. And that we won't be looking for Him. We won't be prepared. Because we've become so fascinated with lesser things. That is why the kingdom needs to be our priority. What does Jesus say? Seek first what? His kingdom. The kingdom of God. And then all the other stuff, God takes care of. It will be added unto us. And we also see this when finally these magi come to Herod, who was the figurehead king at that time. He hears that this guy has been, that Jesus has been born king of the Jews. What does he do? Does he welcome the promised king? No. What does he want to do? Kill him because he's a threat to his own autonomy. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, When Herod heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. That statement about all Jerusalem with him being troubled is a reminder of the vicious, hateful reign that Herod had. He was a cruel dictator who was known for, for sadistic acts of violence. And the Magi go and, they, and he seemingly invites the men Tell me where he is so that I may go and worship him. But he doesn't want to worship Christ. He wants to kill him. And Herod, when the, when the Magi are told in a dream not to go back to Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, 
He's enraged, he becomes furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. I mean, imagine, imagine the cold-heartedness to take these innocent children and to murder them. All because he wanted to remain in power. You know, it, it is amazing to note that there was a desire to kill Christ in his advent. And that is actually the, 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 the vicious response by Herod shows that Herod considers Jesus to be, at least in some level, the true king because he's a threat to his reign. We fast forward to the cross. And there it's not just Herod that is, he's actually at that time been, well, there, he's actually, there's a different Herod on the throne during the time of Christ's crucifixion. But what do they, what does Jerusalem and Rome represented by Pilate and the, the religious leaders represented by the Pharisees and Sadducees, what do they want to do to Christ? Kill him. And so our desire for radical autonomy, our desire to rule and reign our own lives, it will lead us to do unthinkable things. Because we won't bow our knees to the king of the universe. So Christ is demonstrated to be king in his incarnation. Now we don't know much of Christ's early life. In fact, the majority of Christ's life is hidden from us. God has chosen not to reveal what it was like for Christ to be a teenager, what it was like for him to be a young man. We figure around the age of 30 or 31, that's when he began his ministry, and that's when we begin to see him showing and displaying his kingship. And particularly in Matthew, Matthew doesn't begin by speaking of Christ's public ministry. He doesn't begin by speaking of his, um, his preaching ministry or his miracle working ministry. What does Matthew begin by pointing to to Christ? He shows, him, shows us about his temptation. And I would submit to you this evening that Jesus' kingship is the thing that is on the line in his temptation with the devil. And so look with me in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to work our way through and demonstrate how the kingship of Christ is what is being attacked by the devil. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Christ, answered him, the devil, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, 
For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. There is a very clear indication throughout this passage, throughout the temptation of Christ, that at each point Satan is tempting Christ in relationship to his kingship. We see that he asked Christ to command the stones to become bread. He is questioning Christ's ability to be king over the physical realm. Now, if we were to go to John's gospel and Of course, after this event had happened, John doesn't record the temptation of Christ, but John goes through and speaks of a number of signs that Jesus shows. What is the first sign that Jesus does in the book of John? He turns water into wine. And there he demonstrates his sovereignty over the physical universe, over the created order. But yet the devil is coming in and commanding Christ to do that so that essentially what would be happening is Christ is saying, I have this sovereignty derived from the devil. You say, well, it doesn't seem so clear there. You're right, but when we get to the end, it's going to become abundantly clear that what the devil is trying to do is to make Christ submit not to the Father, but to who? To the devil, to him. And so he challenges him about his dominion over the physical creation. And then if, if Christ is truly, as John told us, as we saw the creator of everything that exists, if, he, if, if nothing that exists was created without him, then not only is he the sovereign over the physical universe, but he's also the sovereign over the spiritual universe. And what's the next thing the devil points him to? Well, he asks him to exercise dominion over the angels. Again, he takes him up to a high place and onto the pinnacle of the temple and says, jump, cast yourself down. And then the devil, sly old devil that he is, says, I have scripture to back it up. And he quotes Psalm 91, 11 through 12. For he will, what's the word there? Command. Again, a, a focus on sovereignty. And this speaking of the Father's sovereignty, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now the devil did not quote the whole section there. He doesn't quote the whole psalm, but what's interesting is he doesn't even quote the whole stanza of the psalm. 
There's a reason for that. Do you ever look at what Psalm 91 verse 13 says? Let's just see if you catch why the devil left verse 13 off. You will tread on the lion and the what? The adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. What was the promise of Genesis 3.15? The serpent would bruise the heel of of the Savior, but what would the Savior do to the serpent's head? Crush it. Trample it underfoot. That term, trample underfoot, is a is a sovereign term. It is the term of a king conquering his enemy. And so the devil comes and, you know, of course he's not going to tell Christ about that, right? He's not going to bring up the fact that the psalm is actually speaking of his own defeat. He's trying to turn around the word of God so that he can position himself to be over Christ. And so Christ says, look, you don't, I don't want to put the Lord God to the test. And then finally, we see him offering Christ the kingdoms of the world. It says again, verse 8, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Jesus came to save not just Jews, but also Gentiles. For God so loved the what? The world that He gave His only begotten Son. Christ's mission was not just simply concerned with Israel. He was coming to be a redeemer for Abraham's children and to bring into that promise the Gentiles so that they could be beneficiaries of the promises made to Abraham. He was coming to make two people one. And he would be the king of this one people made of every kindred, tribe, and nation. And the devil comes up and says, here you go. I will give you what you're here for. Every kingdom of the world. And all their glory. Just one catch. I'll give you all these if you just say one thing. If you just fall down and worship me. It is at that point that the devil no longer veils his intentions and what he's doing. He wants Christ to submit to him. You know what the devil is doing? He's doing the very thing he did when he fell from heaven. He says, I will ascend to the throne of heaven. I will depose the king of the universe. I will rule. And he looks at it here and he sees another opportunity. What is Jesus' response? In fact, the temptation here would have possibly been very strong. The devil, from external viewpoints, is offering an alternative to the cross. I mean, you read of the sorrow that enters Christ's life as he's in the garden considering what he's going to face on the cross and he is greatly distressed and disturbed in his soul. He's there considering the prospect of the Father turning his back on him and he's sweating great drops of blood. 
And here at the outset of his ministry, before he's even preached one sermon, what does the devil say? You can skip that all. Just worship me. You know, in in many ways, sin is a call to seek an easier way. Jesus does not promise us health and wealth, does he? Jesus does not promise us an ease of life. He doesn't even promise us the freedoms to meet as we do. We thank Him for His grace that we have a country in which we can do that. But you realize we have brothers and sisters all over the world who don't have the things that we are able to meet. And Dr. Gocher this morning was describing how the church that he was ministering in in Togo, what did they sit on to begin that church? Crates. I'm sorry, this is the church in, um, in Florida. They sat on orange crates. There's a picture in my office of, it's from a movie called The Printing, and The Printing is about how um, uh, a guy named Georgie Vins sought to smuggle Bibles into the Soviet uh, Republic in Russia. And of course, there was a lot of persecution of God's people uh, in Soviet Russia, but one of the things that is in that, it's one of the scenes in that, film that I have a picture of is, is of maybe 10 people, maybe about the size of a group we have here today, maybe even a little bit smaller. And they're in a forest, and they've got snow about up to halfway up their, up their legs. And it's snowing, and, and they're in this secluded place in the forest, and what are they doing? They're worshiping. And they did that because they don't have the freedoms, because they recognize that Christ does not promise ease of life. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. And so Christ models that reality for us in what he does here, but it is a reminder to us as well that oftentimes the easy way is a pathway to temptation. Now, that doesn't mean that just because something's easy, it's wrong. Don't get me wrong here, but Our desire to live a life of ease often causes us to seek sinful means to avoid difficulty. And so the devil offers that to Christ, and Christ here rises as king. Christ displays dominion over the devil by refusing his temptations and then commanding him to leave. Notice what's said here. Be gone, Satan. He's had enough. He could put up with some of the more subtle attacks, but finally when the devil just comes right out and says, I want you to worship me, Christ recognizes the, the utter despicable focus that the devil has, and he's like, that's it. Get out of here, Satan. Because it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. And then verse 11 shows and displays the sovereignty of, God, of Christ, the kingship of Christ. What does the devil do? The devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What I find amazing there is that 
you see Christ's sovereignty and his kingship described in how he exercises that dominion over the devil himself. And let me just say, this is a wonderful thing for us to hope in. God has never ceded his sovereignty to the devil. There is some teaching out there, this idea, maybe you've heard it said, the devil made me what? Do it. That's a lie. The devil tempted you. But the devil is not out there as some some force that has the same power or the same authority as God. The devil here submits himself unwillingly, but he submits himself to the kingship of Christ. And so as we struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, about, about the spiritual rulers of darkness in this world, they are not the king. Only Christ is. And that gives us great hope as we walk through this world. We also see that the angels, that the devil had said, well, they're gonna, you jump off of this pinnacle and they're going to raise you up. What do the angels come and do? They minister to who? The king. So the devil's temptation actually serves to further the demonstration of Christ's kingship in that these angels come to serve their king. And so they come and they, they minister to this wearied God-man. And so I think sometimes we look at Matthew 4. In fact, I remember it's a sermon that stuck with me um, since I first heard it when I was in South Carolina going to seminary. Um, Danny Brooks was the pastor of Heritage Bible Church where my wife and I attended. And I remember him preaching about this temptation of Christ. And one of the things he said is, it wasn't that, that Christ was weak in these moments. And it wasn't like the devil actually felt like he was strong in these moments. The devil probably wished that he wasn't going to do this because he knew the outcome, because he knew who the true king was. And Christ, throughout the entire thing, well, though, although he was tempted in every point like as we are, yet, unlike us, he was without sin. Christ always knew he would become victorious. Now, that reality is true for us today. Remember what we looked at in, in Romans 6 a couple weeks ago when we had the baptism? How should we consider our relationship to sin? We are dead to it. And we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we turn away from the flesh. Sin no longer has what over us? Dominion. And Christ's demonstration of victoriously bringing about victory over temptation is a model for us. It is no longer our master. God is. And we can now live unto righteousness as we're united to Him by faith. So Jesus' kingship is on full display in His temptation. Now, very quickly, we have nine more minutes left, and I think we'll, think we'll be able to get through this. We see Jesus' kingship in his public acts of ministry. And in particular, what we're looking at here is his miraculous acts. We see Jesus displaying kingship over 
creation. Uh, we see that in his commanding the water to become wine. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I don't have the passages up here because they're a little bit more extended passages. But there, there we see the wine runs out. The, the physical um, provision isn't there. And so Mary comes to Jesus and says, with someone that was likely a part of her family, it was be embarrassing for them to run out of wine. They didn't make the proper provisions for the people that were there enjoying the celebration of this marriage. And so Mary comes and says to her son, this is what's happened. And Jesus is like, well, what does it have to do with me? Like The point is, I'm not here to focus on these things, but yet he takes the opportunity to show his sovereignty over creation, and he turns this water into wine. And the wine that is created is of such good quality that the master of the ceremony takes it. And he's like, most people bring out the bad wine at this point, but you've saved the good stuff for the end. And it reminds us of what Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Lo, look, everyone who is thirsty, come and drink by water and wine without price. It is an indication of how Christ both makes up for the foolishness of man's planning and also has no concerns of running out of what is needed. He brings this same thing up with the woman at the well. Listen, you're drawing physical water here, but I can give you, I have for you a well of water that will spring up within your own heart to eternal life. Jesus shows his kingship over the storm. We know this, the disciples are in the boat. It's being tossed back and forth by this great storm. And they come and what is Jesus doing? He's in the bow of the ship sleeping. The king doesn't worry about that which he rules, ruling over him. And, and by the way, that should be a way for us to look at. We can, because Christ is our king, we don't have to worry about the things of this world ruling over us and having victory. And so Jesus comes out and he's like, what's wrong with you people? They're so, you have so little faith. And it says that he... He didn't just say, peace be still, although that's the words that we have recorded. It says that he actually rebukes the storm. Says, peace be still. And then what happens? Creation obeys its king. He commands the storm to stop. He rebuked the storm. This is a, tr a strong term implying his authority. And then his disciples are like, whoa, nobody has ever done this. And so he shows his power over the storm. He shows his kingship over illness. We see this when Peter's in, in Luke chapter 4. Peter's mother-in-law is sick and ill with a fever. And Jesus comes and he rebukes the fever. That same term of authority. And what happens to the fever? It's gone. The fever obeyed. John 5, 1 through 8. Jesus shows real power to heal. He heals a long-term disability. A man who sat lame for over 30 years. 
was completely dependent upon other people to provide for him. And, and there was a superstition that there would be an angel that would come down and, and, and disturb the waters. And if you, if you got in there in enough time, you'd be healed. Well, he was lame and, and everybody else would rush in to heal themselves and they left the lame man behind. And so he calls out to Jesus and says, no one will pick me up and take me in. And Jesus says, well, if you believe, I can heal you. And he heals this man and he tells him to take up his bed and walk. And this man who had been lame for years takes up his bed and walks. The king commands creation and it obeys. We even see this in his kingship by providing for man's physical hunger. Great crowds followed him. You know, you, you feel it when I'm going especially long on a Sunday morning and it's getting to be 11.15, and you're like, oh, I've got this delicious ham baking in the oven, because what else would you cook? And, and you're waiting to get home, and, and I'm just finishing the second point of my first point of my sermon, and you're hungry. This happened in Jesus' ministry. The, great, the crowds followed him. He was a great teacher, but they became hungry. And so all they had, all he had was five loaves and two fishes. There's thousands of people out there. Five loaves and two fishes? How's that going to feed everybody? And yet Christ takes it and he shows his sovereignty over creation. His disciples divide it up and they take it and there's more than enough for those crowds. So Jesus displayed his kingship over creation, but we also see we, his kingship over the spiritual world as well. Jesus cast out demons according to his own authority. It's interesting in, in Mark chapter 1, when this demon recognizes that Christ is there, he instantly recognizes Jesus for who he was. The spiritual world is attesting to the kingship of Christ here. And even those that are fighting against him, those that are arrayed against him, his enemies, they recognize he's the king. Because this demon cries out and says, I know who you are, Jesus the Son of, or, Son of God. Are you here to destroy me? Remember how we looked in... Peter and and 2 Peter and in Jude on a couple Sunday, or last Sunday, at how Christ is keeping the demonic uh, powers under gloomy chains of darkness until the day. Jesus is there and this demon thinks, this must be the day. The king is back. I'm going to be destroyed. And Jesus essentially tells the demon, shut up. He calls him to do that because he wants him to recognize that this idea of Christ being declared the king would have been so strong in these demons that it would have been such a, I'm sorry, the, the, the demonstration of their submission to him would have been such a, a demonstration to those around him that he wasn't ready to fully reveal who he was to the crowds around him. So he says, be quiet. I forbid you to speak. And he casts out the demon. Now, here's the thing. That demon recognized 
the truth of who Christ was. You can recognize the truth of who Christ was and still be a devil. What does James tell us? He says that there are people in the church who are going to say, I believe in Christ. And James says, you do well. But guess what? So do the demons. So what's the difference between a demon that believes that Jesus is who he says he is and a genuine believer who says they believe the same thing? The difference is their submission to the kingship of Christ. It's not enough to just say, Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe that that's true. You must submit to Him as Lord. And that's the difference between the demons and those. So it's not enough just to have the knowledge. You also have to submit yourself to Christ the King. In fact, we see that His dominion over the natural world is itself a means to demonstrating His power to forgive sins. We have this wonderful story of these people. Is, uh, Jesus is, is uh, healing many, many people. And these, these friends come with their lame man and, and they see this crowd around this, um, around this house. And so they can't get in there. And so they're like, well, let's go around this way. They get up on the roof and they cut a hole in the roof. I bet you the people who own that house were real happy about that. They lower this lame man down And Jesus sees this act of faith. And so he says to him, not take up your bed and walk. What does he say to him? Your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees and the the Sadducees and the religious rulers are there. And like, who does this guy think he is that he can forgive sins? Only God, only the king has the right to forgive sins. And so Jesus then explains, look, what difference is it if I tell him that his sins are forgiven or I tell him to take up his bed and walk? Both of those things demonstrate that I am the king. And so he tells him, take up your bed and walk. And what does the guy do? He grabs his bed and walks out of there. And then we finally see the the greatest example of of Christ's kingship over the spiritual world has been displayed in His power to raise the dead. John 11 is the greatest demonstration of Christ's kingly authority. We see this in other areas as well. He raises Jairus' daughter. He raises the widow's son. But Lazarus' um, story and th- that event is the climax. And in fact, it is the it is the prelude to the greater, greatest sign that John will point to, which is Christ's own resurrection from the dead. Jesus comes and, and Martha is there, and she knows the healing power that Jesus has had. And, and Jesus knew that Lazarus was sick. Jesus was a close friend of Lazarus, a close friend of Mary, and a close friend of Martha. And so Martha comes, she sees the Savior coming, and she recognizes his sovereignty. If you had been here, my brother would not be dead. And I I maybe was a little too harsh. She may not have come with that attitude, but there's a clear disconnect in her recognizing that 
Christ is wise in what he allows. He's the king, he's sovereign, he's always good, and yet she's conflicted. My brother's dead, you could have saved him. And Jesus declares himself in one of his I am statements, I am what? The resurrection and the life. Back to John 1. In him was life. And he says, He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then he challenges Martha, Do you believe this? And then he goes, And there is a man who has been physically dead for days. They actually comment, Don't roll away the stone. And in the old King James English, Lord, he stinketh. And Christ rolls the stone away and he calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And he defeats the enemy of death. He shows himself to be king of the universe as he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so his dominion, his kingship over the spiritual world is displayed both in his interactions with that spiritual world and in even his physical ministry proclaiming that same thing. The final thing very quickly is that that kingship is evident to others. We see it with Herod. I'm just going to pop this up here and skip over um, all of these. We see it with Herod again. Herod saw that Christ was a threat. We see it with Zechariah, John the Baptist's son, or John the Baptist's father, as he describes who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We see it in Nathanael, right? Nathanael doesn't believe the disciples that they found the Lord's Christ, and, and Jesus says, I saw you when you were here, and he responds, truly, you are the king of Israel. Again, we already commented, the demons recognized that he was the son of God. But even of such of such impact was his ministry that as he walked into Jerusalem on what we now celebrate as Palm Sunday, what did the crowds cry? Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! The crowds in Jerusalem recognized it. And yet, just a week later, those same crowds that were crying, Blessed is the King of Israel. We're crying out. Not blessings to Christ, but what did they cry? Crucify Him. And even after He had raised from the dead, He had shown Himself to all the disciples except Thomas. Thomas said, listen, I won't ever believe it unless I put my fingers in the wounds in His hands. And so Jesus appears in their midst. And he goes to Thomas, and such a gracious God. You want to see my hands and my feet? Here they are. You want to put your hand in in my side? Go ahead. It's always remarkable to me how Christ lovingly cares for his sheep there. Because he doesn't come brashly and boldly and, and angrily. He just comes and says, look. And of course, Thomas at this point needs no other 
no other proof. He bows before him and he says, my Lord and my God. He recognizes that Jesus is the king by speaking of his lordship over him. And then Jesus challenges Thomas, but that, that challenge is also a, a call to us today. Blessed are you, or you, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. That's us today. And it's a reminder for us, first of all, of, of the work of the Spirit that brings us about. But secondly, and the blessedness we have in that. But secondly, it is also a reminder of what our confession of faith is. And it is that Jesus Christ, He is our God, but He is also our Lord. And we cannot follow Him and seek to dethrone Him in His role as King. So, Christ demonstrates in His ministry, His incarnation, His temptation, and in the acts of His ministry that He is King. We're not going to have a regular Sunday evening service next week because that's the first day of VBS, uh, but we'll come back in two weeks and we'll begin looking at how Jesus shows His kingship in His words and then how He shows His kingship in His suffering on the cross. And it's a remarkable thing to see that the, the, the moment where we think Christ is most weakest, it is actually where He displays His sovereign kingly power the most clearly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. And we thank you that Jesus is king. Lord, may we not be like Eve. May we not be like the devil. May we not seek to live a life autonomous of Christ's lordship. But Lord, may we submit ourselves to the king of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you that Christ is king. May we consider that as we leave this place. May that, may that constrain our actions throughout the rest of this week. Thank you for your word. Dismiss us with your blessing. Bring us back again safely to worship together. We pray this all in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.